So today we have in the studio with us Louise O'Hagan from CyberSafe Ireland. Louise, welcome. Thank you. So good to have you here today. And one of the reasons I really wanted to speak with you is because your background is completely different from my previous speakers. You've got your start in cybersecurity from a research perspective. So for a lot of the listeners who are not familiar with your background, could you give us a little bit of insight to how you got started? Um, yeah, I came back from Australia in 2007 and I actually couldn't get a job in the role that I was working in before. So I decided to do a psychology degree. And for this, I did my thesis on Facebook and my supervisor at the time thought I was a bit crazy making up this thing, Facebook addiction, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I felt strongly about it. So I went ahead and did it. And um, during my degree, I actually did voluntary work with special needs and kind of noticed how they were behaving on social media. And it kind of scared me. So that led me to do a cyber psychology master's and um, where I continued doing research on kind of social media behaviors. And then that led me to doing a PhD. So the PhD, the idea of it is a cybersecurity interdisciplinary approach. So I went to the university and I was put in the cybersecurity department, which really didn't work. They thought I was mad and I thought they were mad. Um, I was talking about kind of behaviors and looking at different things and they're like talking about machine learning. And I just was like, huh? And um, so that was scary. So I kept reading, you know, the human element is the weakest link, human factor, all the things we see in headlines. And I just kept thinking, this is psychology. So I ended up moving to the psychology department and three years later now I'm writing up my PhD. So, yeah. Wow. So to yeah. go from taking a degree and realizing that you have an interest in the cyber side of psychology and now doing a PhD, what, how has that transition been like? very random and just mm -hmm. kind of happened the way it just happened like it wasn't my plan whatsoever even for myself I recruit for the security industry I don't really know that much about cyber psychology would you be able to enlighten us on this topic yeah I don't think most people do yet but hopefully they will it's just studying online behaviors and looking at risks and um, from a different perspective so for example analyzing phishing emails using persuasion techniques and the where they're trying to elicit emotions or where they're putting fear you know just different things like that instead of looking at it with code or whatever someone like me calls it and then other things like social media you know the need to belong and why people are doing things online so just different online behaviors in different contexts and what is the main focus of your phd at the moment so it's um how humans are exploited for data so but this is in illegal and legal context so i look mm -hmm. at phishing i look at social media phishing and then i look at legal context clickbait like terms and conditions and braise wrap like cookies so how we're just giving all our data away <laughs> pretty much you said that a lot of people aren't too familiar with cyber psychology so how do you go about doing your research where would you who would you work with to work on your phd it's been pretty lonely so Kind of, yeah, so mostly myself. I think all PhDs are, though. So conferences are really good. And Twitter, you find other people like you and realize you're not the only one doing it. That's fun. What about challenges when Ooh. it comes to what you're doing now? <laughs> so for my PhD, um, at the start in the cybersecurity department, I felt like I had to do coding. So I like freaked out, did two coding courses, was really bad at it. <laughs> and then... 
I had to do a placement for my PhD and I went and met someone from one of the big accountancy firms and um, they said to me, we don't hire anyone in cybersecurity without a computer science degree. And I was like, oh God. And then when I was finishing up my PhD, when the funding ended, I was trying to get a like a job and the recruiter up north in Belfast was like, we don't have jobs like that. So it was kind of scary at times but actually I did end up getting a placement which was last year in a company and they got me to kind of assess the risks in the company where I saw them from kind of my background and I presented them to the management and they said go ahead and do whatever this awareness and education program you're talking about is so they've actually now extended my contract another year and kept me on so they kind of realized that oh actually there is a need for it but until I was there and showed them the need first, they didn't. But they were kind of sending out phishing emails without teaching people how to identify them, which to me was crazy. So even from my point of view, when I'm recruiting, I don't see a lot of awareness or education type of roles coming up. Just earlier today, I had someone asking me about communications roles within cybersecurity. And it just doesn't really exist in this market or there's very low demand. Why do you think companies or even the company you're working for didn't realize they needed this skill set until they start seeing it. I don't know. I suppose people think they can fix things. You know, if you have an antivirus and, you know, filter in your emails and stuff that it stops everything. But then again, as I said, the headlines are humans are doing this. It's human behavior. So we need to make people aware and train them. How do you do that? Um, lots of different ways. So I do e-learning, I do presentations. And then we're kind of developing some gamification. Gamification is a good idea. Yeah, um, especially with kids. Your work with CyberSafe Ireland, that's where you spend three days yeah. a week with them, right? Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so I started that role in April and uh, CyberSafe does kids talks in schools. So we have a different talk for each class focused on what they do. So we do surveys. Our, actual, our annual report was out today. So all the stats, which are pretty scary, 92% of 8 to 12 year olds have a smart device and I think 43% of them talk to strangers. So there's a lot of really, really scary stuff happening, kids. 43%? Yeah, talk to strangers. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And then like, I think it's 36% of eight-year-old boys play over 18 games. So there's a lot of really scary stuff happening online. I actually made um, a social media profile and a gaming profile, like pretending to be a kid. And on the social media one, I got sent porn and I got sent a list of drugs to buy drugs because I kept the profiles public mm -hmm. and then the gaming one was like one of those lol games you know the little girly doll games and someone asked me where my school was like wow. it's scary yeah so that's all part of the research so yeah that's what cyber safe yeah not mm -hmm. my phd though scary that's an insane world right now mm -hmm. and when you go into schools when you're engaging with kids what are some of the scariest thing that you've identified so far just oversharing on social media, location sharing, the snap maps and Snapchat. They think it's cool to let their friends see where they are. The talking to stranger things is obviously a really big thing. Um, and then, yeah, I don't know, just eight-year-olds having their own devices. Yeah. Like what can be done? Do you think they understand the concept or the danger that it imposes no, so on what, So what we're kind of doing this year is um, if I walked up to you in the street and you didn't know me and I gave you a CD of a video of me, would you think I was weird? And they'll be like, yeah. And they'll be like, would you walk up to someone on the street and give them a video of you? They're like, no. That's what posting on YouTube is. That's exactly what it is. It's a public space. Mm -hmm. So it's just making them realize. 
Because I think it's perception for them. If yeah. it's in person, it's weird. If it's online, it's not. No, yeah, so yeah. just to help them identify, it's really actually yeah, well, the same thing. People really do act different online. Yeah, they mm. do. When you see someone in person versus being able to hide behind the screens. And what about cyberbullying? So many kids have phones yeah, and they're at that age. Yeah, that's really common. And especially in the gaming as what happened to me when I tried to game the people. And then another one was, I want to kill you. Mm-hmm. In a different game. So, so weird. It's actually quite concerning. And not much is done in this country about it, which is also concerning. Like wow. in the UK, they are rolling out in their education program that there is cyber involved in it. But in Ireland, it's, it is going to come, I think, soon. But I think we're a little bit behind. We'll get there. Yeah. And we'll rely on talented people like yourself mm-hmm. to help us get there. Part of your work with CyberSafe Ireland, apart from going into schools, delivering trainings to kids, you're also training or educating teachers as well as parents. Parents, yeah, which parents really need to know. Mm -hmm. What is the number one question you get from them? Normally about settings, privacy settings, because it's so confusing. Privacy settings, location settings device settings, app settings. I mean, I get confused with them. So this year we've started doing videos, like step-by-step videos, hoping that they'll understand them better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then this year, actually YouTube, well, YouTube have YouTube kids, but they're rolling out age categories for YouTube, which is good. Okay. So things are moving forward. Okay. That's good. Yeah. yeah. And with teachers as well, do you feel that we've only started our teacher training this year? So we've only done one so far. So Hopefully more teachers get trained. But I think 52% in our annual report this year don't feel equipped to deal with the incidents. And a lot of them are having incidents in schools. So. And they're all incidents related to cyberbullying? Mostly, yeah. Some of them would be kind of be a lot of online abuse and sending nudes and whatnot mm-hmm. as well. Sending nudes? Yeah, I was in, yeah, I was in wow. at the NSPCC conference, um, Kids Online, a few months ago. And they're getting 22 phone calls a day of child sexual abuse online. And that's the people reporting it. It's horrible. It's horrifying. How do you keep going when you get exposed to such statistics every day? Is that what actually motivates you to continue the work you do? Yeah, because I wasn't as passionate about it when I started as I am now. Now I'm like, oh my God, that's actually happening. And especially when I joined the sites myself as a kid, or like, you know, as a, mm-hmm. actually as a kid and saw what I was coming across. Like imagine being like an eight-year-old child and someone saying, I want to kill you or where's your school? So we just need to teach them how to react, you know, block, you know, tell your parent and how to deal with it, what actions to take. Because yeah. it's scary for kids to come across stuff oh, like that. Oh, sure. At yeah. eight. Yeah. You wouldn't know how to. You're, you're not supposed to know how to deal with it. But no, exactly. education. But realistically, they have to be taught. They do. And that's the, you know, realization. It's a different world today. Yeah, there's no point in hiding behind it and pretending it doesn't happen. And there's a lot of interesting work that's been going on in the background and you're really busy with your PhD as well. Was there any significant turning point yeah, I was having a PhD meltdown, which anyone that does PhD knows what that is. And I was like, that's it. Can't do this anymore. I'll do, I'm will i going to try to apply to a conference. And if I don't get it, that's, I just, no, I'm done. So I applied to the conference. My paper got accepted. Totally freaked out. Um, anyway, went anyway. And it was a half an hour presentation. I had 32 slides. I did them in 16 minutes. Like I talked so fast, freaked out. But the guy that ran the conference came up to me and was like, don't leave without talking to me. And I was like, 
my God, like, am I in trouble because I was too quick or like what's going on? And then he came up to me after and was like, don't ever stop doing what you're doing. This is exactly what we need. And was really, really supportive and kept in contact with me, actually invited me to another conference in Poland to report more of my research and stuff. So that was really, really good. And then I applied to present my research in the home office, loads of PhD students do, and got accepted for that. So that was another thing like, I must be doing something right. Because a lot of academia isn't related to the real world, like the actual things that are happening now. So it was a struggle. What do you think is the hardest thing about doing a PhD? Oh, there's a lot of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's lowly. You're doing this one topic on your own that no one else is. And yeah, it's just hard to keep motivated. Why do you want to do it then? I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> I had like seven months till I submit and I just had like a two month break there because I couldn't handle it. So I don't know. Ask me in March if I actually submit it or not. <laughs> we'll see. We'll, we'll be looking forward to that. I'm pretty sure you will. And what about a piece of advice that you've received that's kept you going or has helped you? It would have been that on. man at the conference. Yeah. Yeah. He literally changed. Like I was done, done, done. I was mm-hmm. like, I'm insane. Like I need to stop doing this. Like everyone's telling me, you know, I had a thing it's like in the psychology department where, I was, where I'm doing my PhD and I have an annual review and I was talking about social engineering online and, and the guy goes at the end of it, he just made that up. Like he just made that up. That's not what social engineering is. And I was like, like what? And he's like, anyway, if, if your aim is what you think, you'd be working for Apple or writing books. And I was like, oh my God. That's intense. Yeah. And uh, I was like, oh, maybe cybersecurity department wasn't that bad. <laughs> yeah. And if we talk about your work, your research, how that's going to be relevant for the industry, because it is, yeah. it's important for companies to understand or to train their stuff. Of course, we do have some companies that do afford training to their yeah. employees, but there aren't as many companies that are doing that at the moment or for example in your case you said the company that you're working with at the moment they didn't even realize that they needed this until you got in yeah how can we bridge that gap i don't know i think those more horrible headlines when people realize that they need to be educated i don't really know I started my PhD in 2015 and that's when I was reading Week is Laying, Human Error. We've all read them and it's still not much has changed. So I really don't know. Mm -hmm. Talking about the company that you're working with, you said the employees didn't even know how to identify a phishing email. Well, they weren't taught. So my Mm. kind of point was, you know, there's loads of companies that do the phishing campaigns and they send employees phishing emails. Mm -hmm. But you can't expect them to know how to identify them if you haven't explained what to look out for, how they look completely different on a mobile phone. Do you know, all these little things, all of them are going to request something. All of them are going to have like a emotion, whether it's greed, love, you know, romance scams, whatever it is. People don't realize that they need to be taught how to identify all the little bits and pieces in them. Would you be able to teach us how? Yeah, I make e-learning things for that company. So, and they literally go step by step and picks apart mm-hmm. loads of different phishing emails. So you can, when you see an email, but don't get me wrong, I still sometimes receive emails. I don't know if they're phishing or not. Yeah. Like I got one from Dropbox the other day and I was like, I don't even have a Dropbox account, but they know my name and they're asking me to update something. So that's one of them. Yeah. For people who maybe don't have access to the e-learning and they're listening to this podcast, what is the easiest way to identify if it's a phishing email? So I'd have four different things. So I'd put, if I could show you a picture, but I can't. I'd get an email and I'd put a red box around the warning signs of this is 
where it's obvious fishing, a green box around where this is, you literally can't tell the difference. Mm-hmm. And then a yellow box around where it's trying to elicit emotions and an orange box around the request. All phishing emails have those four components. So they're the four things someone needs to look out for. So maybe if I just post her somewhere with them on it or something. Actually, okay. um, there's a phishing blog on CyberSafe Ireland site where I do have one of those pictures on it. Okay, yeah. so be sure to check out that. I'll put a link to it as well. Am I right to say one of the easiest ways as well is to check the sender email address? Yeah, if you have an Android phone, you have to click on the sender and then details and mm-hmm. then it shows, you know, the big long. And so on a PC, it's easier. But on a phone, it's not so easy because it just comes up, say, Apple support. So oh. someone just reads a name. Yeah. So you, it's it's hard work. Like you literally <laughs> have to click and, and, and then it the is. link as well. It's not as simple as, oh, that looks weird, you know. So if you're not sure, just don't click into it. No. Because you're shuttling between Belfast as well as Dublin at the moment. Do you have any engagements with the wider region or even with, let's say, on Twitter? You say that that's where you found a lot of support with people. And my doing- job, Twitter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How has Twitter helped you with your role? And because I'm on Twitter as well, partly because of work, but it's really interesting content. Yeah. Loads of... I think it's so good for cybersecurity industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really, really good. I'm actually not on LinkedIn. Apparently LinkedIn is good too, but... For networking. Yeah. Yes. Although a lot of times I do see irrelevant content on LinkedIn as one. Well. I think to myself, is this Facebook? Which yeah, I don't use yeah, anymore. I heard that people are posting videos and stuff now. So. Yeah, but it's really good for sharing content as well. For a lot of people, Twitter is, I suppose, what Instagram and Facebook is. You know, yeah. Twitter and LinkedIn would be yeah, about kind the of same. Yeah, industry or specific yeah, yeah, topics. Exactly. So, yeah. Where do you see the future of cyber psychology? Because this is such a new topic that most of us don't know much. Yeah. Well, I've noticed that there is a lot more kind of awareness. There's something in, what did I see today in the convention center in, I think, October, something, some company that have made cybersecurity awareness and education. I think it's an online one, mm-hmm. which it could be good. But I think for companies, they need it to be personalized for them as well. Like for the company I work in, I do specific HR ones and use actual emails that come into HR looking like they're from the CEO and asking for different things. So do you think it's important to personalize it? Yeah. And how can we get more people into the area of research? It's hard because you need money to research. We're actually doing a big research project in CyberSafe Ireland at the moment, behavior change. So we're actually assessing if our training programs work. So we're going to do surveys before and after with the kids to see if they're going to change any behaviors. So because maybe we're not doing it right. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a better way of doing it. Constant feedback. Nobody yeah. knows. I yeah. mean, again, cybersecurity has been around, but the level of incidents, the complexity of the incidents mm-hmm. that we're seeing now is unparalleled. Um, and kids are getting exposed to mobile phones, the internet, the age of one. Yeah, I know. Have you seen those baby chairs where it actually yeah. has the big handle thing to put the iPad on? Really? Yeah. Okay, I works. haven't seen that, yeah. but that is insane. Yeah, they're poor lies. <laughs> no, and and I always think, why would you let your kid be, you know, stuck to a screen just watching videos all the I time? I know, I'm kind of sometimes judgy like that, but then people that have kids are like, you don't know what it's like, or you just want quiet time. That, that device isn't apparent. That's true. It mm. becomes a habit as well. Mm. You know, um, mm. kids making noise just to get it. 
Yeah. And then the yeah, we had a woman at um we had a stand at Kid Fest and a woman said that her three year old has tantrums if she tries to take the iPad off. We're like, How is your three year old controlling you? They do create behaviour problems. That's why we have um an online agreement that's on the site as well for kids and parents to talk to their parents and have agree rules. And it's rules for the parents too. Mm-hmm. Like parents are modelling behaviour. You know, you see all these girl ladies walking down the street with their phone, pushing the pram. I'm not saying I wouldn't do it. I'm just <laughs> saying it's not good. <laughs> um, so what are some of the rules that... I suppose I'm getting into this part because it's quite different from the other episodes I've done. Yeah. And in your work, you, you obviously speak to parents, you speak to teachers and kids themselves. So it's really mm. is quite a symbiotic relationship there. And it's just interesting to think about. Parents could be anyone that we're working with today. Your colleagues, your friends, your yeah. family. And we could be talking about this as peers, but the moment they become a parent, it's a different world because yeah. you're you're managing or you're dealing with a kid who doesn't operate at the same level as you are. Yeah, you know? I think the, our annual report is 36% of parents and kids don't talk to each other at all about their online activities mm -hmm. which is not good how can they start or how do they start well you have to talk about the good as well as the bad like mm -hmm. you know if your kids playing football or in the park or on a play date you're going to ask how it was so why not ask how's gaming or what are you up to show us a funny youtube video or who are you following on twitch or why is that interesting simple conversation starters really But like nice conversations, not like don't do this, don't do that, because that's never going to work. I mean, the whole thing with the Internet is like evolutionary, you know, need to belong, social bonds. It is creating all these. So we can't stop them. Mm -hmm. And if all, if someone's friends are all doing something, they're going to want to do it. And a lot of the time it's fun. Mm -hmm. Like I've never used Snap Maps, but I presume they think it's fun. So I've you know. never even ha heard of Snap Maps. <laughs> yeah. I must be getting old. <laughs> <laughs> I only know because of work in fairness. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure all of us listening would have friends who don't exist online at all. Yeah. They're you know, clever. That's quite difficult to achieve. Mm. You know, obviously because of my work um, and I suppose your work as yeah. well, we have to have a certain degree of visibility online. Yeah. But how do you actually protect your identity? How do you protect yourself against... Avatars and nicknames. And that's what we recommend for kids. Don't put your real name. Mm -hmm. Don't share your, you know, your school uniform, the crest, things mm. like that. Yeah. But it kind of needs to be taught before it's too late. It's almost a whole generation of mindset change. Yeah. Or education. It's a work in progress. And is there a lot of support from the government? Is there enough support out there or awareness even about CyberSafe and what you guys are doing? So today was our annual report launch and we had very good coverage. Um, there isn't enough being done. There's nothing mandatory yet, but hopefully it's going to come. And I think when people read the stats today, they're going to get scared. If I was a parent, I'd be really scared. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, hopefully um, not too long from now, Yeah, it changes. And all schools, I think they need to have the talks and especially the teachers and parents as well. Because if they can't deal with it, then who can? Yeah, I don't know if it's the same here, but back home... I have some nieces and nephews who are attending um, kindergartens or things like crash. Yeah. And the teachers would have a WhatsApp group with the parents to constantly update them on what's yeah. going on. Um, yeah, what's yeah. Happening. One of my friends has an app and like gets um, sent what her kid has for lunch. 
What do you think about that? Is that useful? Is that how it should be? Or is there a better is way of doing necessary? things? I don't know. I don't know. I don't have a kid, so I can't really... I don't yeah. know if I want to know what my kid ate for lunch. Because what I've heard is the teachers literally have to report every single thing. If, how much... Is that at the end of yeah, the day or I, throughout the day? Because if it's throughout no the day, that's not good. If yeah. the, you know, if they're on exactly. the device, yeah. That, that's what I was thinking as well. Do, are they then doing their job or are they just merely babysitting? Yeah. You know, it's such a big question mark. I, I'm not an expert on this. I don't have a kid either, so I don't really know. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, would you like to tell us a little bit more about your thesis that you did? Um, the one from my master's I did on social media, what I called cyber trends. So at the time, 2014, it was neck nomination, I spoke a challenge, no makeup selfie, people were twerking, I think there was some oh, yeah. shake thing or something. Was mm. there? And I was kind of like, what are all these people doing? It's so weird. But like the majority of my friends are doing it and I was just like, it just kind of baffled me. So I ended up doing my thesis on that. So I called it cyber trends and categorized all those type of things as cyber trends and then did personality tests and um, used a need to belong scale and social desirability. So the outcome was that people with a high need to belong do these things, which I found interesting. But it was so I think it was like 86 percent of people that did the study actually did do them. So it's a very high percentage of people to be doing them. And then that thesis actually got turned into a book chapter in cyber psychology and society. And Amazing. I actually, yeah. So I still see different cyber trends. What did I see one the other day? People throwing cheese slices on their babies' faces. Yeah. <laughs> and recently, I was just thinking about that. Recently, Instagram made a big change where they took away the visibility of likes. And you know, it's so funny because I half live in Belfast, but my phone is UK number. I mm. can still see likes. So yeah. they haven't gone for me, but I've seen that. Yeah, that's to do with self-esteem and social influencers, I think. And they've taken away um, the anorexia and self-harm hashtags as well. Okay. Which but is really good that they've taken them away. No, for sure. Mm. But these are, you know, steps that uh, always I, I find... Well, for me, I always embrace them. I think they're good. But I also, a lot of people who, you know, like when the Instagram taking away likes thing came out at work, my colleagues were just discussing, oh, well, what, what's the impact of that now? What's going to happen? Everyone felt very positive about it. Yeah. But they were talking about how businesses that rely on such things. Yeah. And then you're thinking, well, one of my colleagues made a really, really good point. She said, well, why do we have to rely on how many likes a business have to mm. decide if we like it or not. And if the likes do. can be from bots as well. They might yeah. even be from humans. All yeah. the fake reviews and everything. Yeah, all the click farms in yeah. China. I actually something. did, part of my uh, PhD research was on social media brand pages. So the pages on brands on Facebook and why people use them and stuff. So a lot of it was for social reasons, for communication, like making friends with other people that like just say a certain product or whatever, and then information gathering. So it was quite interesting. Mm -hmm. of why people use kind of these brand pages mm -hmm. to get followers whenever i like a new page be it food or anything that's public almost instantly after i like it i get a request from another similar page yeah instantly mm, yeah you know and then you're wondering it's weird isn't it yeah 
the targeted advertising is just a whole different thing. So the fake profile that I made for that was a kid for in CyberSafe, and um, the ad that came up on her, it came up on the story and on the newsfeed was mm-hmm. um, child modeling for eight to 12 year olds. So knowing that this person was a child wow. advertising them to be a model. Yeah. Are there any other interesting stories that you could share with us? My terms and conditions study was quite interesting. Every single person clicked through the terms and conditions. There was like, I think, 600 participants and they all clicked without reading them. There was 14 people that clicked to read them and spent 40 seconds on the page was max. So the reality is that all these privacy policies and whatnot are not getting read, which is another thing I think is a big problem. They need to be communicated properly. We know no one's reading them. The studies have been done, it takes like 30 hours or something to read a few of them. It's ridiculous. Like Just like the moment GDPR was implemented. Oh God, yeah. Every single website. Off, yeah. oh, it, it is the most single most annoying yeah. change. And it's not even in a positive way. Because you're supposed not for to us, the data no. subjects. Yeah, you're, you're supposed to only just give your consent once mm-hmm. to that particular website and you're done. But the reality is every single time you go back into that page, you get asked the same thing. Mm-hmm. And what that does, I think, is desensitize people. And Yeah, security fatigue, that's the thing. Exactly. Yeah. Like, I mean, I accept them and ignore them. Cookies, yeah, yeah, whatever. Too. I know. It's funny because we're supposed to be more vigilant, but like you said, security fatigue. But instant gratification. I want that now. I want to read that now. I want to do that now. So yeah. I'm just going to accept that's it. That's the age that we live in yeah. right now. You know, Yeah, so instant there's a lot more work to be done, but um, massive respect for your work. Um, it's challenging to do it yourself. I know yeah. that, but there's a whole community behind you. Um, hopefully, yeah, Twitter community. <laughs> yeah, and I'm on Twitter. We're, yeah. fr- we're friends there. Yeah. <laughs> That's actually how I met you, was through Twitter. Yeah, um, yeah. shout out to Joanne. Joanne. Yay. Thanks for um, connecting us. Um, I'm really hoping to get down to Galway and speak to Joanne at some stage as well. Um, But thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Women in Security podcast brought to you by Morgan McKinley. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. My name is Leif and Tan and we'll chat soon.